my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Today's guest is British director, actor, and singer Leon Lopez. As an actor, Leon is known for his roles in British soap operas Brookside and EastEnders. His director resume, or CV as they say here in Europe, includes the 2015 film Soft Lad and episodes of British soaps like Hollyoaks, Coronation Street, and Emmerdale. Thank you for joining me on this new podcast. This is a new podcast that I came up with about a month and a half ago, with me being here in Europe as an American, as a Black gay American. I've been mostly in Sweden, but I'm back in the UK now for a little bit of time. But yeah, I'm really interested in finding other Black gay voices, and not just Black gay voices, but Black gay professionals, and discovered you some time ago when I was watching the first season of the DL Chronicles. You know, it was a really good show, and I got really into it, and I was like, why is there not a second season? And then somehow I think I stumbled onto, I think you had it on YouTube, an audition reel. Yeah, because I knew DeAndre, the creators, were friends with an ex-partner of mine. And then they were like, oh, we're holding auditions. I don't know what the purpose was. And I think it didn't end up coming off in the end anyway. Now, obviously, they have done a second season or they've done some episodes and stuff. But um, I think they were planning to. Maybe they had a budget or something and maybe it fell through. I don't know. But yeah, they said audition for it and I did put it up. <laughs> I just and it's still on there. I should really take it down, but oh well. I really liked your YouTube channel again as an American, and I had traveled a little bit at that time out of the U.S., but, you know, I was like, oh, there's actors in the U.K. who are thriving, who are growing, and seeing how your career grew, and now you're a director, and I think that's really cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. Life's crazy. (laughs) How are you feeling, and where are you at right now? Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm currently in Leeds in the UK. I direct some soap operas here in the UK. And one of them is called Emmerdale, which is what I'm working on at the minute. I tend to travel around a lot, and especially with COVID, you know, being blessed that I've managed to keep working. The first lockdown that happened all around the world, everything closed down. But then after that, when things started opening up, the first thing that kind of got back on its feet in the UK was the soap operas in, because I'd kind of already established myself and people were booking me for work they just kept booking me and yeah I've kept working keeping my mind active I'm okay but it's still like mental health wise is a bit up and down at times because of all the craziness going on but yeah thankful to be working thankfully COVID didn't hit anybody close to me in a severe way like a few people tested positive and I had a few people who were in hospital and various times but touch wood nobody's uh, lost their lives from it so that's been a blessing really mm-hmm. at work everything's really cool because all of the soap operas put in provisions to make sure that social distancing was in place and mask wearing so you kind of feel really really secure when you're there anyway regardless of what your thoughts of covid are because everybody is keeping a distance and we're having to stage things so that 
actors don't come into contact with each other and just be more creative with the stage and stuff. Obviously, you think of COVID because your temperature checked every day and social distancing's in place. But as far as safety-wise, you kind of know you're not really touching anything that anybody else has touched. So you never really feel compromised in that way. Mm. It's good to hear that those that have been affected in your life are better. I've had a couple of friends in L.A. have gotten COVID. And then, too, to hear that professionally speaking, especially for creatives, that there's still work out there. That's really good to hear. Definitely. The soap operas, they were the first to start up. And I think governments aren't daft. They know if they're going to keep people at home, they need to keep them with stuff to watch. I think dramas and stuff took a lot longer to come back. I think they are back now. With television dramas, they have a lot of the time a lot bigger budget. So they can do things where they like bubble up cast members and crew, you know, for weeks at a time to make sure that they're COVID safe. To my ear, I know you're English, but what part of England are you from? I'm from Liverpool originally. To my ear, there seems to be a lot of accents in the UK. So in being from Liverpool, how was it growing up there? You know, it was cool. I'm from a very working class background, from a single parent background. Like I was raised by my mom. My dad wasn't really part of bringing me up. I've got two brothers, one older, one younger. My mom works as a cleaner. Now she's like nearly 70 and she still works. She loves working. You know, she'd never give it up. She loves kind of keeping active. Like she instilled quite early on, you know, a good work ethic just to go out and work and do stuff. And I was very lucky with her because she was never really judgmental on what I wanted to do. And every year I'd have a different job that I thought I wanted to go into. And she'd just be really supportive of like, you know, that's what you want to do. Go ahead and do it. My family were very loving and caring. I mean, we didn't have a lot of money or anything growing up, but had an awful lot of love, really. And we were all very supportive to each other. Every time I had an idea of something that I wanted to do, I always had a lot of support and felt like I could be back within it. So the city in itself, it's a great city. It's vibrant. There's lots going on. And even back then, a couple of years after I was born, there was riots, racial riots, really, and political all around the UK. But Liverpool was hit really badly. And a lot of the stuff that kind of went on around that time did have a shadow over the city for a long, long time. And probably still does to this day. There was racial divides, you know, class divides and things like that. So even though it was never really pushed in your face, it was always there. You kind of always sensed there was issues within the city to be resolved. And some of those issues have actually made the city an amazing place. And then at the time, it's made it like a bit more of a struggle in places. I was quite lucky where I grew up in Liverpool, late in Toxteth. It's like one of the oldest black communities in the country, you know, one of the oldest Chinese communities. A lot of ethnic minority people, if you'd say, were based in this one area. So for me growing up, I never really noticed anything. It's only as you get a bit older and you start venturing out of like your area that you started noticing that, you know, there wasn't as many people of colour or, you know, faces that looked different. It was mostly white. And then you kind of hear things that you wouldn't hear from where I lived, people calling people names and those type of things and, you know, being faced with racial comments and slurs or whatever. Whatever's part of your life, you get on with it and, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, that type of thing. One thing it did make me realise is that, you know, we're not all seen as equal. I truly believe that we are all equal, but we're not always all seen as equal. You know, when you go into certain situations, even though people might smile to your face, sometimes there's a bit of an undercurrent or something people's thoughts and feelings are different to what they exhibit to you you know it you know just help me navigate my life now more than ever the world's corrupt politicians lie to us 
we lie to each other. There are the social divides because of class. There are social divides because of the color of your skin. Being aware of that from an early age and actually being able to use it to kind of make me work harder in everything that I do. Opportunities that were afforded to me weren't as great as they were for other people. You know, and I'm mixed race. I identify as black, but, you know, I've got a white woman, I've got a black dad. It's like people of different skin tones are treated differently. I noticed that I was treated differently as a lighter skinned person than somebody mm-hmm. with darker skin. When you talked about your home base and just having that support, it seems like it would help not just in your creative life, but also would you just share it in your personal life? Finding ways to, seems like, navigate life is life, but I'm going to find my path that works for me too. Yeah, exactly. It's good to hear that there is history here. Well, Liverpool is part of the triangle of like the slave trade. Liverpool was probably the biggest port in the country at the time, outside of London. And even if you look back even further, they think that there was black people in Liverpool even longer. It's got one of the oldest black communities. Everybody thinks of London, but actually there's black people in Liverpool before they were in London, I think. I have some homework to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love history of the diaspora. So yeah, that's really something I want to continue with. I have a silly question. I feel like I have to ask for my American folks. Was the influence of the Beatles something that was known or like a big deal? Oh, goodness. Yeah. I mean, in Liverpool, when you go around, there's places named after the Beatles. They've got their own museum and it's a huge, huge cultural pull to the city. So lots of the tourists and stuff that came to the city were because of the Beatles. The street that I used to live on, Ringo Starr used to live a few streets up the way. So like there'd be a tour bus going past all the time. I think Liverpool's very, very proud of the Beatles coming from there. A lot of time when you go around the world, the first thing people know is either the football club or the Beatles. So you can't get away with it. And also we should be proud of it. You know, they've made a big impact on the world with the music that they created and part of what they created was inspired by coming from Liverpool, really. So, yeah, I'm quite proud of that. And so you mentioned like you had the support from your family, from your mom, as far as allowing you to find your path. Was that connected to you discovering acting? I guess so. It's always weird with me with acting because I always used to kind of imitate all the films and stuff, especially the musical films. Like Grease was my favorite film ever growing up. Uh, things like Sound of Music and some of the Disney films and a lot of the musical stuff I used to kind of record and play on repeat and like learn all the words and those types of things and as a kid I'd make all my cousins and my family act out scenes from it and think but I never even put two and two together thinking about it being a performer I always thought that I wanted to be a journalist or a doctor or a lawyer and it wasn't until kind of later on when I was about 14 15 at school we didn't do drama at school, but we did a lot of things like public speaking or events where we had to get up in. The teachers would always choose me or I'd volunteer. And bit by bit, slowly, I was just encouraged to do more and more performance. And then I did a play at the Liverpool every month, like a tiny role in like a big production of something. And yeah, I kind of got the bug and I was encouraged to perform. I wanted to do music more than I wanted to act. I was always interested in singing and writing songs from way before that. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. Not what I thought, that's actually what I wanted to do. I thought that acting would be an easier way to get into the music industry, if I'm honest. I always thought, oh, well, I could become an actor because it was never something at the top of my agenda. So I'll go and do that. And then 
using any profile I get from being an actor, I'll go and do music, thinking it was that simple. Like the acting side worked out, the music not so much. I did do music for a while and I was in bands and I did stuff on my own. With the music industry, you have to live and breathe it. It's not something you can dip into unless you are like a big A-list actor who goes and does an odd single and gets signed to a major label. But if you want to be an actual artist, you have to put the work in. And as much as I loved it, by the time I got to a point where actually it's something that I could do, I was already established as an actor. And it would mean giving up that and giving up my livelihood and giving up the chance to pay bills to do it. And I thought, I'm not that passionate about it. So I kind of focused more on the acting side. I recently came across an old Madonna interview. She said she was a dancer. Yeah. The interesting ways that you find, I guess, your calling in some ways. Yeah, definitely. So how was the music and or the theater scene or acting scene in Liverpool when you got started? Music is massive in Liverpool, still is probably to this day, because of the legacy of the Beatles. And also lots of artists who have passed through Liverpool pre-Beatles and post-Beatles. It does cultivate a lot of raw talent. So you have lots of vocalists, you have great bands, musicians, music producers and stuff from there. When I was doing my music with the bands that I was in when I was younger, we had access to music studios. We'd write our own music and things like that. Back then, there was a lot more smaller performance venues to perform at. And then there was also road shows and stuff, because the stuff we did was kind of like soulful pop music. We were touring around the country on different road shows for radio stations and things. It doesn't really exist now, which is a shame, really, because it was great to kind of have that experience of how to perform to big audiences and things like that. I'm so glad that I did it when I did then, and I'm not young trying to do it now, because... I feel like the connection between the artist and the audience has been severed and everything's kind of gone online. And I don't know, there's nothing better than performing in front of a crowd. You can't learn your craft unless you can perform in front of a crowd. And I feel like future generations to come are really going to miss out on that. You know, they're not going to know what it's like to kind of have the experience of seeing a great performer who kind of moves you, not just because they sing well or a band, not just because they play well, because of the passion and the performance that they put across in. I feel like that is sometimes just as important, if not more important, than the song itself. Right. What do they call that? Cutting your teeth? Yeah, yeah, literally. Artists that I didn't even know, I would go with a friend to see their performance, and that would sell me a lot of times of seeing them live, yeah. Yeah. When did you decide for yourself that you wanted to pursue it as a professional career? So basically, in the band that I was in, I was coming to the end of, School in the UK, we do like your secondary school, which is your high school. And then where you'd normally go straight to college, I think that we normally do things like A-levels until the age of 18. And I was on my first year of A-levels. And at the time, I was wanting to do more with music and I was doing things on the side, joining kind of youth groups and things like that. And then I decided after my first year of A-levels, decided I wanted to go and do drama at Formal Arts College. I auditioned, I got in. Well, the first year I was there was when I joined the band. So I was doing my training at college and then I was performing with the band as well. And then um, we got signed to a management company and we were doing gigs and things like that. And I finished college and then I got an audition for a TV show. The manager in the band just encouraged me to do it and the whole band did. It was a soap opera, it's not on anymore, but it's called Brookside. And then I got the part. I never kind of made the conscious decision. 
my conscious decision was as soon as I decided I wanted to go and study performance, it was like, I'm going to be a performer. I kind of put everything into motion to do it, really. And everything just seemed to click into place after that. It's like mm-hmm. the universe aligned. Now, once your career got going, was your focus always going to be on the UK or did you think about going to Hollywood or, or to New York? I don't know, really. I just wanted to work. Being from a working class background, you want to just work and be working. I was very lucky to get that job. And once I got that, it's like that's something that people have strived all their lives to do. I was very thankful of it and very grateful of it. So after that, I you know, got myself an agent and then the band didn't really take off. The band went by the wayside. So then I was just the agent and going for jobs and things. And I told my agents I wanted to do more theatre and musical theatre because I can combine the music and the, and the acting. It was just different people who I work with kind of help guide. I just knew I wanted to work. Because for me, my measurement of success is being able to work regularly, especially in this industry. I can't lie, I went to every audition that I was sent for, really. And most jobs that I got offered, I took. It's only when I got a little bit older, I started being a bit more selective of the stuff. And not because the jobs were necessarily bad. It was like when I was younger, I'd take a job. And sometimes I'd be in a job and not really enjoy it, but just be doing it for the experience. And then when I got a bit older and I had a couple of bad experiences where I took the job thinking I wanted to do it and then I didn't enjoy it. There's nothing worse than being in a job that I don't enjoy. When I know for a fact there'd probably be tens of other people who'd love to be in that role or love to have that job. And it's not fair to me, the cast, and to other people. It's like happiness in your workplace is more important than anything. And I was lucky to be in the position that I could make those choices. That was a conversation actually I had earlier today with a friend because I worked for a company for a long time. And that came up because she had a question about, should she take this opportunity for the experience? But she was honest that she didn't feel it. I liked what you said, because that was my take on it, too, is that from my experience, if you're able to go for what feels right for you. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the thing is, like with your friend and same with me, it's like, if it's something that I'd never done before, then I'd take it for the experience. If it's something that's for the experience, but you've already got that experience, then you're not going to experience anything really apart from rehashing something you've already done. I forgot you said about going to America. I don't know. I always thought whatever job I got, as I say, my focus is being as successful as I possibly can and keep working. All different opportunities always come my way. You know, I did a play in America a few years ago and I worked in TV shows in uh, Morocco and done stuff all over. As an actor, you're dictated a lot of the time by the jobs that you can actually be put forward for by your agent or by the way you look and your casting type or whatever. Actually, pre-COVID was the first time I actually made a choice that I wanted to go and work in America. I've been working, doing directing TV for a couple of years because I've got some friends who live in America. I never really had the goal to kind of go as an actor because I thought if I audition for a job and it takes me to America, that'll happen. But I feel as a director, especially as a director of colour, in the UK, I'd not really experienced what it was like over here as a director, but I knew that in America, well, actually, I don't, didn't know, but I'd heard that in America, opportunities-wise, there was more, not necessarily on the bigger scale things, but some of the smaller productions. And the smaller productions over there sometimes have a wider reach and also pay more than some of the bigger productions here. But to get on the bigger productions over here, You'd be working for years and years and years. And I'm happy to work on smaller productions. So I was thinking, well, maybe relocate to America, try and get a visa. 
And I went over and I had a couple of meetings with managers over there to take me on as a director. Mm-hmm. And then I was starting the process of speaking to a lawyer and things like that. And then COVID hit. And then that got put on the back burner and I've been non-stop working here. And I don't think America's for me now after seeing what's happened over the last 12 months. <laughs> I think I need things to kind of calm down a little bit before Ray. Yeah. It's a different energy, I'll say that. I've been out of the U.S. now for 18 months. I saw that the first time I left the U.S. when I was in high school. You notice that right away. There's a different energy. I don't like to say that there's better racism, but it's just different. Yeah, it's like I've been to America so many times over the years. I love New York. It's one of my favorite cities. Been to L.A., Florida, all like the usual touristy places. We went a couple of years ago with friends. I've just felt there's an air in America that was different. And I remember saying to my friends, it feels like something's going to happen here. You know, I know there's all the stuff with Trump. For me, politicians are all as corrupt as each other, but they just definitely felt like something was going on in America. The positivity and the drive and the happiness seemed to have kind of gone away. I don't know. I mean, I think we're all becoming a lot more awakened to what's going on in the world, aren't we? And we think that we live in these free societies, you know, in the UK and in America and the rich and wealthy countries. But in some ways, there's a lot of oppression on us as people as well. We might be in like a nice apartment, we might be wherever, but we're not as free as we've been made out to believe. Yeah. I would say, I don't want to say victim of integration, but I think got sold the idea that everything was fine after certain laws were passed. To your career, when you were starting out, because... There's actors that play gay roles, and I didn't think of that when I saw your reel, but finding out later that you're gay, was that something that you were cognizant of when you started your career of being public? Well, I hadn't really come out. Like, the job that I got on Brookside, I was only 19. I was probably aware from my early teenage years that I was gay, but I kind of hadn't come out to my friends or to anybody at all. I didn't have sex till, like, into my 20s, so it was like... For me, there was not really a need to. And also in high school, like one of my really close friends came out as being gay, like 13, 14. And, you know, he was very proud, very strong, really intelligent, all this type of stuff. I admired him for it. But then watch seeing how people treated him. They were, you know, being a certain way to his face and then a certain way behind his back. And just realizing that, you know, you can't really trust anybody. And I thought I'm not in the right space in my life to put myself out there in that way. I need to be fully confident and really know myself a lot more before I'm willing to do that. It takes a lot of strength to do that, and I don't think I had the strength at the time. When Brookside happened, I was there for like four years, and I kind of came out a couple of years into it, just like my close friends there. But again, I was just a bit worried because of press and things like that and media and not knowing how to navigate it and how would it come across and what effects would it have on my family and all those type of things. So I kind of kept it to myself for quite a while. And then even when I did come out, to my friends and family. I never did a public thing. Unless I kind of want to use it as a media ploy to try and push my career in a certain way. And I thought, I don't really. But by then I was happy enough that the fact that I'd come out to my friends, colleagues in my professional life. I wasn't in the closet in any way. Even though sometimes I'd bump into people who'd like say, oh, I should make it more public. And I thought, well, if there's a time in my life that it's important to do that and talk about it publicly, then I will. I think One of the first times was only when I started making films because the stories that I wanted to tell were kind of based on my life and people in my life. And a lot of them touched on LGBTQ themes. So 
it made sense to talk about me being gay and how that affected my work. If I'm in a show and I'm playing a character who's straight or whatever, why am I going to talk about being gay? On the other side of it, I'd go for parts to play gay characters and constantly being told, oh, you know, you need to camp it up a little bit more. And I found that highly offensive. So I'd never really get cast in gay roles. The first gay role I think I played was a play called Wig Out, which is at the Royal Court. And it was about the ballroom scene in New York. And I auditioned to play one of the drag queens, but I'm big and clumpy and I can't walk in shoes, never mind in high heels. I played a DJ who went out with one of the drag queens from the house. It's great what RuPaul's Drag Race has done for that scene, but I feel like within the house scene, you know, watching things like Paris is Burning and kind of realising that a lot of people within that scene aren't necessarily drag. Some of them could be transgender, but nobody really knew what transgender was really at that time. So anyway, I'm getting a bit political. But that was the first time I'd ever, I think, played a gay role. And not for the want of trying. You know, the writer of that was gay. It wasn't about kind of fitting people into boxes and stereotypes. When it comes to people being gay, the spectrum's huge, you know what I mean? Right. But I feel like when it comes to TV, especially a lot of the UK TV, it's kind of pigeonholes and this is what we look for. And you see it across the board now. It's like whenever it comes to gay stuff, it's very rare that you kind of just get something that reflects the gay community as a whole or the LGBT community as a whole. It's like gay characters tend to kind of be a specific type. People have been programmed to, this is gay. So then when they see something that isn't that, they can't compute it. It's like, well, that's not gay. Anyway, I've gone completely off topic. What was the question? <laughs> well, specifically in your early career, like, was that a concern? So I guess saying it all out loud, yeah, it probably was a concern because it was just fear, fear of the unknown. I feel like sometimes I'm a little bit more calm, sometimes a little bit more flamboyant, sometimes I'm a little bit more macho. That's just the way the world is. So it's like, yeah, I think I'd spent all this time kind of being afraid of the fact that I was gay for myself more than anything. So when it came to work, it was something to throw myself into. And it wasn't the fact that I denied the fact that I was gay. It was never anything that was brought up. It was like I never even computed it. It didn't cross my mind. You know, I'd focus solely on being successful and working hard and being really good at my job and whatever. I didn't even have pretend girlfriends. I did when I was a little bit younger. Because people would say, you know, oh, this girl fancies you or that. So I'd always try to avoid the fact of dating anybody. It was, it was the simplest way. I think that's, in my opinion, how a lot of us become driven in our careers. That sparked some awareness is within my own past. <laughs> you know, when you see in TV and plays and stuff, and the gay character in the mum says, you know, oh, you're going to get a girlfriend. They say, oh, no, I'm too busy with school. Because you force yourself to be busy. I wouldn't be doing half the things that I'm doing now if I wasn't gay. Because being gay, I had lots of friends when I was really, really young. And then I started to go more introverted by staying in my room and writing and, you know, poetry and songs and plays and things like that. That was the groundwork to, for me doing what I'm doing now. But if I wasn't gay, you know, I'd probably be out with those friends, some of them getting girls pregnant, you know. Being gay has kind of saved me in many ways from lots of things. Can I ask that question, too, because I know at least in America with actors, male actors in particular, there's the fear that if you do come out that you will be automatically typecast and they'll only think of you if there's a gay role. Yeah. I'm not and sure if that's the same here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, definitely. I think now it's a lot different because, I don't know, trends change all the time, don't they, and those types of things. But I think back then it was because it was like very rare that you'd find a gay actor be cast in a straight role. But you'd always find lots of straight actors who'd be casting gay roles. 
which is why I think there's a big push now with like LGBT creators who do want to use more gay characters to play gay or, you know, lesbian actors to play lesbian or trans actors to play trans characters. There was a lot of stuff with Russell T. Davis talking about Stopcore Boys, that was the original name, It's a Sin, talking about he wanted to cast all gay actors to play gay parts. And if you can find all gay actors to play those roles, then fine. I'd like to try and find an actor who is gay to play the role. Sometimes you can't always because it's like the casting's a lot more complex than just the fact of them being gay. You know, there's lots of factors that go into it. But I think what's wrong with that when for years and years straight actors are being employed to be gay and winning awards for it, whereas gay actors being employed to play gay, oh, it's fine because that's who they are. It's like, well, they're still doing the same roles. Why can't they win an award for it? Why is it less risky for a gay actor to play a gay role than a straight actor to play a gay role? I just struggle to bloody try and be cast in a gay part every time I went up for a gay part, that you weren't gay enough or whatever. That really irks me a lot. And that just proves my point of like saying there's a certain type of gay character in certain things. My friend circle is majority gay people and it's like the colours of the rainbow. Everybody is so different, ranging from butch to more camp to feminine to whatever. It's like there's no one box at all. It's almost as if we have to have this style of gay character in order to sell it to the public. But the public buy whatever we sell them when we're creating stuff. It's very, yeah. very weird. This sounds similar to, it seems still, the challenge of getting more colors of representation as far as black. You know, black yeah. is not just one particular oh, persona well, or type. When I finished Brookside, I was cast for everything and I'd always be casting something as a black role and, you know, a mixed race. So a lot of the time I'd get it. I'd always be like, in my mind, oh, yeah, I've got the part, but it's like an acceptable look. Then it went a lot more extreme where it was a bit like everybody of dark skin, but really dark skin. It's like, do you know what? As you say, there's different shades, you know, when it comes to people of colour. It's almost like a trend happens and it's like, oh, we're going to go with all of that now. We're going to go with all of this now and whatever. I just find it really strange. In commercials and stuff, I see an awful lot of mixed race tends to be. But when it comes to like dramas and stuff, they've gone for more of a look of like dark skin. And I think it's great. But I think it's like, when is it going to be kind of balanced? Unless you've got somebody of colour who's writing the piece where you'll get more of a spectrum. Like Michaela um, Cole's I May Destroy You, you saw a lot more of a range of different skin tones. The creator was black herself. That kind of ties into like you're behind the scenes now. How did you get into directing? I didn't want to direct. Initially, I wanted to make something to be in. And I got my friend who's a writer to write something and I cast it and I was like producing it. And it was like a web series kind of thing. I didn't know how to even operate a camera back then. And then I got another friend to shoot it and he was lighting it. To be honest, we got it back and it, it wasn't great. My friend who wrote it, he's like an established writer and he was like, look, I don't really want to put my name to it. You know, it was 2009, so like YouTube is around, it's just starting to kick off, and then we were potentially going to get it on a site who put web series on, we were going to do it regularly, but it just didn't look right. Uh, anyway, so then time went on, and I just thought, well, I'm going to teach myself how to make something. So I went on holiday, actually, to LA with a couple of friends, and one of my friends who was over there for a while, he had a showreel made by a company over there. I looked at it, and I was like, wow, it looked like CSI Miami. I was like, how are they doing this for a showreel? And just when DSLRs had come out, so Canon had just released their DSLR, so no one even knew about them then. And then Sony had released their first version of video DSLR, so I bought that when I got home. And I just started like making little video blogs and things. And then I started doing showreels for actors over here as a bit of a sideline business. 
And at the time, like, I think there was one company who was doing it in, like, North London. But they were using, like, the old Sony Z-Range cameras. They weren't film cameras at all. They were more, like, documentary style. But DSLRs with prime lenses and stuff just made things look a lot more cinematic. So I started doing that, but I was doing it mostly to teach myself how to operate and how to lie. So a lot of my actors' friends who I'd met in musicals had booked me because they wanted to get into TV. So I'd write the scenes for them because I used to write a lot and stuff then. And then I'd shoot it, light it and everything. So I'd be teaching myself at the same time as creating a product for them. And I taught myself editing and things like that. And I just found a massive love for the production side of things. And then people started hiring me to do other projects. So it'd be like some corporate stuff. And then there was somebody who hired me to make a film, like a half hour film for them. And as it went on, as I was getting more successful in it, I just kind of buy more and more equipment. So lighting equipment, sound equipment, upgraded my camera a few times until I was shooting on like a cinema grade camera. And then um, a play that I'd written years ago called Soft Lad, a friend who read it and she was like, oh, why don't you make your film? And I was like, oh, I haven't got a film. And she went, oh, Soft Lad. I said, oh, it's not a film, it's a play. She was like, oh, I think that'd make a good film. So I took the script, which I'd written in one draft, literally about four years before. Wow. And people at the time were saying, oh, you're going to be in it. I was like, no, I don't want to be in it. I want to direct it. I got cast together. I got a tiny budget, invested in a better computer because I was shooting in raw. So it would be a lot more cinematic. And I just went and we shot it. Got into a couple of actors who were friends who were in it, going into soap operas here in the UK, two big soap operas. So then when I'd finished it, I did a viewing and then the distribution company came to see it. They were like, look, it's not for us, but I recommend you contacting this other small distribution company who deals with LGBT films. So I sent it to them. And then at the time, the two actors had just started blowing up on screen. So it was a big selling point. So they bought it from me and they put it out and then got distribution on DVD. We did a small cinema tour. It went on to Netflix in the UK for two years. And then it got into a film festival, the first film festival, London East End Film Festival. And that was sponsored by University of East London. And I saw at the back of it, they did a film course. So I applied for to do a master's in film. It was a one-year course. And I spent a year doing that and I made a load of films there at the same time as I was doing some acting jobs. I just wanted to tick a box because at the time, soft lad, people were like, oh, it's just like an extended soap opera. And Leon's been in soaps and he's just doing what he knows and all this stuff. So I thought, well, I'll go in, bloody just tick a box, pass the course, did really well on the course. And all the films that I made during the course got into festivals and they got distribution and those type of things. And then it's just kind of gone from there. And even now people say, oh, would you ever be in something that you make? So I, I love making things too much. And also I love not having to worry about being in front of the camera and be judged <laughs> as much, especially in nowadays with like social media, like everyone's got an opinion on everything. I'm very lucky working in TV now. I know I am making a wage, but ultimately like I do want to, go back to making my own stories and the stories that I want to tell. There's nothing more creative for me than that. I hear passion when you talk about it. It sounds like you've really challenged yourself to do the research and do the due diligence. Anybody can shoot, but just to do the work behind making good content. Like as I said earlier, I went to acting college, but I didn't go to drama school. And I know as an actor, I was very successful. Even now, you know, I still get asked to do certain jobs and as I say, I'm busy, so I can't go. But I trained a lot. My two-year acting course, I learned a lot. On the job, I've learned. You learn more on the job a lot of the time for everything. But I thought, I'm not getting into that with the film side of it. I don't want anybody come back to me and be like, oh, he's just a soap actor who's picked up a camera. 
wanted to make sure it was a master's. I didn't want to just do a degree. So I studied history of cinema, different cinematographers over the years, all the different genres, documentary, all these different things. I teach now part-time and the fact that I've got the master's allows me to do that because I've got the qualification to do it. And the material that I shot as part of the course built up my CV and portfolio, which got me a lot of jobs afterwards. I don't think I knew when I initially saw it, I was on streaming either Amazon or iTunes Softlat that you were behind yeah. it. But the storyline initially was like, I can't watch that because it was a different plot with the brother dating the yeah. sister's husband. Oh, that sounds messy. I don't know if I'm ready for it. But then I watched <laughs> it because I was like, that's different. Oh, thank you. It's like the first long form thing that I'd ever done. And, you know, most of the time I always start with a disclaimer of, oh, you know, it was a play and blah, blah, blah. And again, it was cutting my teeth in something. And I think knowing what I know now, there's a reason why you have script editors. Sometimes cinema can be a little bit too arty-farty and people can get a bit carried away by it. Ultimately, you want to tell a good story. There are techniques that I could have used what I know now within it. Not necessarily to make it better, because I think what it is, is fine. But just little things I think I could have made it a little bit more punchy and made more use of what I had. You know, I had an amazing cast there. We had a lot of locations and stuff. And I think, oh, I could have just done a little bit more with it. But then, you know what? I kind of travelled the world with that film. I got to go to Thailand. I got to go to uh, Indonesia. It got to do festivals in America and stuff. And the feedback that I got from people because of that film was made for less than like £15,000. You know, I had people coming up to me. I had women coming up to me in Indonesia saying that, you know, it's the first time they've seen their story on the screen. You know, women affected by things like HIV and, you know, being affected by the husband's actions. And they'd never get to see that in their country normally. And, you know, it's really made them feel better about themselves knowing that they're not just going through it in their country, that other places are going through the things that are within the film. And for me, that's more important than fucking any success. Just knowing that you've done something that's actually helped somebody come to terms with issues that they're facing in their lives, that's powerful for me. Where you're at now in your career, is there anything that you would alter or change in how you got to where you're at now? I'm happy with where I am, you know, I'm being fairly successful. I've got good friends, good family, and I'm working and got my health. That's like the most important thing. It's like, I'm just glad that I've done everything that's got me here because Everything else that's coming up in my life, it's kind of given me the foundations to kind of go full steam ahead and do it. Sounds healthy. (laughs) (laughs) I have a confession. Knowing that I was interviewing you, who's a director who knows about lighting and everything, I was like, I didn't think about a ring light. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm just sat in front of a window. You see, it keeps overexposing every now and again. When I'm in Leeds, like one of my really good friends lets me stay with him. So to be honest, when I do do Zooms or anything like that, I do put lighting on, but I keep it out the way so it doesn't look like it. And I have like the lights dim behind me and everything. And people go, oh, wow, you know, it looks so well lit in there. I'm like, really? No. But yeah, I normally light everything. It's terrible. Uh, Well, I thank you very much for this interview. It's been great. Thanks for having me. So where can we find you online to follow you? To be honest, I'm mostly on Twitter. I am on Instagram. I do post on it, although a friend posted to me today because it's like, are you okay? Because all I'm posting about is like political stuff at the moment and not meaning to. But yeah, I'm on Twitter, Leon Lopez, Twitter, and Instagram's just Leon Lopez as well. So I like Twitter because you can kind of have conversations with people. Do you have any last comments or anything you want to say? 
no, I'm good, thank you. Just like not had a haircut for like three months. <laughs> that was another thing. I was like, oh, the hair. <laughs> Because I'm going into work. If I get a haircut, people will think that I broke COVID rules. So I can't even get a haircut. Ah, yeah. Oh, get into trouble. Yeah. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.